Hamlin will start when it's touched. Hamlin check touches it. It begins. Three seconds. Hondo off the go. He's got it with a second. John Hamlin check on it. It's Pierce. Is this the tender? Johnson gets it into Bird. Rubens is there. Bird comes free. Celtics have led the entire game by the handle and advanced to the conference finals. Brown the jump shot. Puts it in. P.J. Brown, the unlikely hero. The call. They're going to give the ball to Detroit. Bird steals it. Johnson. Layup. Boston. One second left. All right. Good afternoon, Celtics fans. Welcome to Celtics Speed. I'm your host, Rich Conti, and we've got a special show for you today. We're going to break format a little bit and actually have two guests on today. And of course, our focus, uh, given that the uh, Celtics uh, tomorrow welcome back Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce uh, in their game against the Brooklyn Nets. So to focus on that, we're actually going to have a couple of guests today. Our first guest is going to be uh, Steve Bulpett, the insider of the Boston Herald, who's been covering the team for over 30 years. And he was the man who, if those of you remember, actually broke the Garnett trade back when it occurred in uh, July of 2007. We're going to take a, uh, talk to him, take a look back at that trade and, and some of the ensuing years and a little bit about the Celtics' future. And then a little bit later on in the show, we are going to have uh, Coach Tim Capistraw, uh, analyst for the Brooklyn Nets to talk a little bit about how KG and Pierce are fitting in with the Nets now and where he sees uh, that team going over the rest of this season and into the future. I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, Adam Lowenstein. Welcome, Adam. Glad to have you today. Thank you very much. It was We, we haven't had a show together in a while, so I'll be glad to re, uh, rekindle the magic. Great. And all right, without any further ado, I'm going to bring uh, Stephen and uh, we can talk a little bit about KG and Pierce's return uh, to Boston. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Good to talk with you guys. Yeah, big fan. I've been uh, following your work for a long time. Uh, grew up in the uh, South Shore of Boston, so grew up uh, reading you in the Boston Herald covering uh, the beloved Celtics. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm a North Shore guy. We don't like people from the South Shore, so I'll be That's talking funny. to Adam mainly. Uh, well, that's good. Since you guys are, you know, you'll have the, the similar accents down, I think maybe he should uh, handle most of the communication. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, uh, the one thing we wanted to maybe start with is, you know, since you were really on top of the Garnett trade that happened back in July of 2007, right from the beginning, um, you know, could you talk a little bit about that experience and kind of what the lead up was to the deal and kind of uh, maybe give us a little bit of an insider's uh, perspective on the media and how uh, uh, breaking that, that story really came about? Well, um, it was kind of a series of events that that led to the the trade itself, um, led to Garnett being available. And I think, you know, people tend to just focus on uh, Kevin McHale, his relationship with Danny Ainge, and they stopped there. But the roots of this trade were were in Minnesota with ownership, um, and they had – come to McHale, who was running the team, and said, look, you know, we've been losing like crazy with Kevin Garnett. You know, we can do that without him and uh, and not spend so much money. Um, and uh, it, got a, I, it got a little contentious within the Timberwolves there for a while. Um, 
the uh, there was one point where uh, McHale was contacted <clears throat> by his bosses and said, you know, why is Kevin Garnett still on our team? So uh, they were they were bound to to, to trade him that summer, and uh, then it just came down to best offer, and you know I'd heard that things were were moving along on some different fronts, and it's kind of funny when it's you know you. You supposedly have time off in the summer, but you really don't. <laughs> and uh, I remember this thing was alive, and it was dead, and it was alive, and it was a dead, and it was, you know, this was uh, Freddy Krueger in, uh, in, in sneakers. Um, but uh, I remember one day, uh, it was actually, uh, uh, this is terrible, but I was golfing. Uh, and I say that it was <laughs> terrible because I'm not a good golfer. Uh, and um, the, another call came in, and it said, hey, I, I think there's something going back on here. And that's kind of, I remember that afternoon briefly, what actually when it happened and uh, when it started to happen again. And that's, uh, that's where, it, where it went to. And it just became a matter of who had the best offer. And the Celtics clearly did with Al Jefferson and, and their package. It was very interesting. Is Adam here? It was just very interesting when they put together this whole team and had the big three together. Were you skeptical or were you optimistic when everything came together that it felt like a small window that they ended up stretching out? What were your impressions, really, when you saw it all come to fruition and bring in Allen and Garnett? Well, when the Allen part was made, when that trade was made on on draft night, my thought was that there has to be another shoe to drop here. Because just with Ray Allen and Paul Pierce alone, um, you know, I, I didn't think that was nearly enough, and I'm, I'm, I wasn't certain that was worth giving up the fifth pick in the draft to make yourselves, you know, at that point I, it seemed like marginally better, um, and for how long? Uh, Ray Allen was still obviously a very good player, but you know, you were lacking in some key areas. Um, when they brought it together. I felt like, you know, with the draft, there's nothing assured. And, you know, the fifth pick was Jeff Green. And we can look at him all these years later and say, here's a guy that that still is as he was then, a player with wonderful talent that just doesn't seem to be able to put it together on the consistent enough basis that would, uh, you know, that, that you would hope for and maybe even expect when you see his skill level. Uh, so, you know, I figured they had a, a reasonable window, um, and <clears throat> they got they got one championship out of it. They should have got a second. In fact, you know, I, I still think you can pin that that second uh, one on Garnett in 2010. Um, but um, you know, would they have gotten more if, Gar- if Garnett weren't hurt in 2009? But then you can look at it, guys, and say. If P.J. Brown doesn't hit the 20-footer as the shot clock is expiring against Cleveland, do they win one? Do they get past Cleveland? So it's uh, these things are really fragile, and a lot of things have to come through. And so, you know, you can say they should have won two definitely and maybe a third, but, you know, they could have, had, they could have come up with zero. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think sometimes folks, particularly in this era of super teams, underestimate um, how hard it is to win a championship. It's not about the talent. It's about those, you know, everything kind of falling into line. And, you know, as you mentioned, that that, that 
uh, playoffs in uh, 2008 was interesting all around. There was that almost um, schizophrenic first-round series with the Hawks where it went seven games, so it had the perception of being a, a close series. But if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the scoring differential, the points differential, you know, you could look at it as, a, as a, oddly enough, a seven-game blowout. Then they struggled with Cleveland and seemed to put it together with Detroit. I mean, what was the feeling at the time kind of within the media and even, you know, along the teams? I mean, you know, were they really – feeling like, oh, wow, you know, as dominant as we were in the regular season, you know, we might come up short here? Well, um, I think I think the, the Hawks finished about, was it 28 games behind the Celtics that year? But they had gotten better at the end of the season. Uh, but still, um, I think the feeling was just, you know, you're you're drifting a little too close to danger. And you know that you. I think I remember writing in the preview to Game Seven is that you've allowed this to become a potential banana peel game, in that you know you slip on you know you make one slip, and you could lose it. You allow things you know all kinds of different factors to come in when it's a one-game playoff, and that's why the NCAA tournament is so so strange because not strange but I guess exciting because anything can happen in one game, and they allowed that to come into play against the Hawks. Um, you know, I, I just think that uh, that was a team that, that even then sometimes struggled with, with focus, um, and, and as good as they were and as focused as they were overall that year, uh, that was going to be something that would, that would rear its head further down the line. But, uh, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have been allowed to go to, to seven games, and with even those guys weren't um, certainly they weren't at their age now. Uh, they were still a veteran group that really didn't want to get involved in long series, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, they, they were kind of flirting with disaster by doing that. Yeah, I was fortunate enough that season, uh, just prior to the playoffs in April, getting to see the Celtics play in Atlanta against the Hawks. And I don't know if you uh, can remember back that far, but that was an interesting game. It was a tight game. Um, It was looking like those two teams were kind of on a collision course for the first round of the playoffs. And uh, it was a road game. Uh, Atlanta had them them down for a bit in the fourth quarter. And and Sam Cassell kind of stepped up big there. And, you know, of course, he played a role in the playoffs, as did other veterans like, you know, P.J. Brown and, of course, uh, um, you know James Posey. Um, you know how were, how important were the, some of those complimentary uh, veteran role players ultimately to that championship run? I think hugely important. Um, you've got to find guys that that uh, that fit on a number of different levels. Not only do they do something that that you need done in terms of just basic work, but do they fit? in the overall chemical composition of, of your team? Um, do they embrace what, you know, what role you need them to, to accept? Uh, and it, it may be a limited one. Um, I think that season, you know, and I, in fact, I was talking about this with Doc Rivers when I was out, out west doing that feature on him a few weeks ago. And, you know, he was a guy that, that was viewed as, that a lot of people were taken, you know, taking to task for his, his coaching. Uh, even though he didn't really didn't have the the goods to to win uh, before this deal, that year he not only got Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen, and subsequently uh, P.J. Brown and you know, James Posey. These guys, well, P.J. Brown came later in the season, but 
Um, he got Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen uh, to join Paul Pierce at a time where all three had kind of surrendered, you know, <laughs> had surrendered to the to the basketball gods. They looked at it and said, "Hey, um, we've been the stars. We've got the accolades. We've got the All Star Game appearances. We have the big paychecks. You know, what we don't have is is as a championship." And I think at that point, it became cool among those three guys and consequently among the rest of the team to say, hey, look, we're, we're going to sacrifice, we're going to do what it takes here. And uh, there, was, uh, there was that sense on that team. And, you know, that's something you don't see even on good teams now all the time. Uh, so not only did they get those players, but like as Doc will admit, he got them at the right time in their lives. He you know, the biorhythms were were in line. The planets were, were together on this one. And what's really interesting about the role players is that everything, you know, as you said, was aligned that year. However, the, the following few years, you know, we weren't really sure what 08, 09 would have done with the injuries with the role players. But the role players since then have been up and down. You know, we saw the likes of Nate Robinson come in and out. We've seen Glenn Davis turn into Brandon Baster the trade. We've seen guys like Michael Petras in the team, even Jason Terry last season. Role players have been all over the place for this team, and it seems like the secondary roster has changed almost every year for this team. Does that hurt when you look at such turnover like that for an NBA team? And then has it been spotty success for Ainge recently as far as signing free agents? Well, as you're asking a question, I wanted to go back to one quick point uh, about 2007-2008, and it actually involves Ainge. I think you could argue that one of the best moves he has made uh, in, in his career as a GM with the Celtics was in the summer of 2007 uh, not going out and getting a veteran point guard uh, that the, the one that Doc Rivers desperately wanted was, was asking for. Uh, and I think that was a conscious move on Ainge's part to, to manage the rotation, to kind of go above Doc's head on that because he essentially forced Doc into playing Rajon Rondo. Hmm. And I think had there been a, a Sam Cassell earlier in the year that you might have seen Rondo uh, get buried a little bit, his progress not be what it was that season. But Danny essentially assured that Rondo would have the keys. And, and that became huge for that team as it went along because he gave them that element of, you know, of getting the ball up the court uh, defensively, hey, in Game Six against the Lakers in the finals, that that the, the clinching game, uh, the Lakers will admit to you that, that Rondo dominated that game. He his defense, he didn't allow them to get into their offense most of that evening, and and he was the, you know, the the dominant player that night. Uh, but as as regards the complementary players in the years going forward, um, the first decision was not to re-sign James Posey at what he was asking for. And I think part of that was because he simply wasn't worth what he was going to get. And you could have argued at the time that, well, you know, he's worth more to you because you need him to fill a role. That was another case where I believe that Ainge was trying to force Doc's hand and, and get him to play Tony Allen more. And that became a little bit of, a, of an issue as, as time went forward. And I think that as as we've gone along and as we've seen 
everything developed. James Posey kind of went downhill pretty quickly, and Tony Allen has developed into, I think, what Ainge was saying all along he would. Uh, so that was an that was an error there. I think that, you know, Doc probably should have played Tony Allen more and trusted him more, even though uh, Tony's mistakes would, would be the kind that would make you go a little bit crazy. Uh, his the good things he did were, you know, weighed more heavily in in the Celtics' favor. Um, but as time went on, you know. Uh, had guys been healthy last year, would would Jason Terry had been a a bigger factor? Um, you know, uh, Courtney Lee, he didn't seem to grasp it last year. I think he he, he kind of put a little bit too much pressure on himself. Uh, but you know, there the moves that you make are really only the complementary players can really only be as good as the guys up top were are, and um, you know. There were questions as time went on with those guys. Yes, yeah, Steve, that's that's a great segue to kind of talk a little bit about you know where the Celtics head from here, and I and I really liked the uh, the, the the Rondo story um, because you know I, I I think the people undersell when they talk about the value of bottoming out. I think they undersell the role that you know guys like like KG and Pierce and Allen can play to the development of a, of a talented young player in Rondo. And on the flip side, how hard it is sometimes for young players, no matter how talented to really develop into, you know, a guy who understands what it takes to win in the NBA without that support system around. I think it's, it's, it's fun to kind of point and laugh at the, uh, the busts and the drafts and the GMs that make those picks. But the reality is, a lot of times those busts have as much to do with the situation that those guys get drafted in as it does, you know, the, the, the player's innate ability. So, you know, obviously the trade that, that came along this summer was, was kind of a no-brainer um, and, and a godfather offer, really, that the Nets made uh, to, to the Celtics and, you know, would have been next to impossible to turn around. But, you know, kind of in an alternate universe where that offer never comes along and, and you know, kind of Garnett and Pierce are back in the fold and, and working with this younger group of players, um, you know, what what impact do you think that would have had? Do you think that, you know, those players like Sullinger and, and Green and even a guy like Rondo are far enough along in their career and benefited enough from, from that exposure they did have that they're kind of pointing in the right direction or, you know, would they benefit even more from some, some additional tutelage? I think it would have been interesting around here, but if, if Pierce and Garnett are back, essentially, you know, we're, we're playing shuffleboard at the old folks home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it would have been hard for this team to, to, to retrace steps again. And, and, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that, that, the move that got made this summer had to be made, and I'm frankly still stunned that it was, that it was able to be made. Uh, I'm not sure who the Nets were bidding against, but they gave <laughs> up an awful lot. Uh, and, you know, talk about taking a chance, and all of a sudden, you know, what are they going to get to show for this? When, uh, you know, Brooke Lopez went down, uh, that really, you know, took away – I would, I would believe their chance to get it together and and compete at the, at the top level this year, and you know, and that's gone. Um, the Nets have played a lot better. They've uh, realized that that as Paul Pierce was, and Paul Pierce was the best post player on the Celtics for all his years here, and mm-hmm. the Nets have realized that they're they're playing him inside a lot more. Um, and uh, but it's still, it's you know, I think that uh, that. 
what got done had to get done. And it's not just that the Celtics are going to get a high draft pick and what, who will that player be and what can he do for this team next year. It's what can happen with the draft picks as far as packages and, you know, can you trade? Is there a player on another team that's very, very good that's about to run out his contract and wants out? And can you make the enticing deal because of all the, the, the currency you have in your pocket? Um, that's going to be where, you know, where the games are played for the Celtics over the next several months. It's going to be on the telephones and uh, seeing what they can come up with. And what's really interesting about this weekend is it's kind of like earlier this season when the Celtics were facing Brooklyn, they faced Doc Rivers the night before. Now two nights or yeah, two nights before, they're going to be facing Kendrick Perkins wearing number five and giving us a little glimpse at what the old Celtics used to be like. So as far as what we were looking for with Sunday goes, Paul Pierce and Kevin Arnett returning to the Garden, what, what are we expecting for, from you know, the Jumbotron, the crowd? What do you think is going to happen as far as the off-the-court festivities and the on-the-court on uh, play? Well, what happens Sunday? Uh, I think it's going to be an emotional day. Uh, no, excuse me, emotional night. Um, I, I think that you, know, you, you can pretty much guarantee that, uh, that the eye faucets on Paul Pierce are going to be turned on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I expect nothing less. Uh, there is crying in basketball before the game starts, <laughs> or, or, you know, um, as he showed when he, uh, when he went out to get his ring. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be an important you know, evening. The Celtic fans are enjoying this year uh, because they know that there's a purpose to it. Uh, and it's amazing. We were in Washington where they were a, a 500 team playing really good basketball uh, and headed for the playoffs. And there weren't a lot of people there. And the people that were there were, they, they numbered more than the Celtic fans in the building, but the Celtic fans were louder. Um, wow. So I think that, that, that there's nothing but a good feeling here. Look, if they could, if people could get excited for, for Doc Rivers and do the old Lang Syne routine and welcome him back after he <laughs> had said he was going to be here for life and then, you know, cut his Celtic life short, then certainly they're going to be uh, excited about Paul Pierce and Kevin coming back and the opportunity to, to – you know, to tell them what they feel like. That's great. One, one more question before we let you go, Steve. You talked a little bit about, you know, kind of Brooklyn's ability to turn it around. They have played a little bit better, but, of course, they're going forward without Brooke Lopez, who's, you know, obviously a big part of their, their team. Um, what do you see happening beyond this year with, with KG and Pierce in Brooklyn? Is there, you know, kind of any whispers around the league? Or if not, kind of what – how do you see it playing out? Well, I, I think it's going to be in the hands of the, their owner, the, uh, the the great Mikhail Prokhorov, uh, <laughs> and I expect to see uh, Boris Badenov and Natasha come in and clean house. Uh, somehow there'll be, you know, something will happen and it'll be involving uh, spy rings and and whatever. I, I don't know how he gets out of this, guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they turn this around. They. They don't have the draft picks coming up down the line. Um, he's willing to spend money. He's willing to pay the luxury tax and all that. Um, and, you know, maybe I guess there's a, an outside chance he could fight his way through it uh, by, you know, by taking on big contracts. But 
I, I find it really hard to envision um, how this works out for the Nets. Um, I just don't see it right now. And, again, I, I could easily be wrong on this, and they could uh, find a way to make a U-turn uh, this summer. Um, but I think it would require other people in the league to be stupid for them, and um, I don't see it right now. Yeah, they've kind of uh, backed themselves in a corner a bit. And, um, you know, hey, if worse comes to worse, Prokhorov could probably afford to buy the entire NBA, and uh, <laughs> and that way he's guaranteed a winner. Um, Maybe he'll work thanks. with the people in China and just call in the debt from the U.S. and <laughs> just kind of take over the country. And There you, know, you go. you got to be creative here. That's right. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Really, really appreciate you joining us and taking time out of your day. And, you know, folks, of course, can uh, check out Steve in the Boston Harrow and follow him on Twitter at uh, Steve B. Hoop um, on Twitter. So thanks so much, Steve. And um, we'd love to have you again on, uh, on again sometime in the future. No worries. Good to speak with you guys. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, all right, Adam. Well, that was a, a, one of our better uh, guest segments we've had on the show. That was fantastic, and and Steve just has that that I don't know how to like it's it's a enthusiasm that comes through his words. So he's not going to be all over the place and, and describe things and and be um, all over, but he's going to give you so much with how he describes things and how he depicts things, and he does that in his writing. It's it's amazing, and. I love that Rocky and Bullwinkle reference, Boris and Natasha. Like, that was, like, the perfect way to, to sum up an interview like that about Prokhorov. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was, and, and, and you knew it was just queued up there for him, you know, talking about, yeah. you know, kind of ending the segment talking about Prokhorov and the Nets. So, yeah, I thought that was great. And, um, you know, he talked a little bit about the uh, the deal with the Nets this summer and how, you know, it was kind of a deal that had to be made and certainly sets the Celtics up, uh, you know, very nicely over the next few years. Uh, CLNS Radio's Larry Russell actually is, is running a column this weekend where he kind of equates that trade to the Herschel Walker deal, uh, of course, that Dallas made back in the day with Minnesota that set them up for their Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith uh, dynasty. And I, I think that's a pretty good comparison. It's very interesting, especially when we're coming around to Super Bowl weekend in just about a few days, or at least Super Bowl week or two week or whatever they want to call it, with football ending and basketball taking over. It's the perfect segue that you can have with a football mention. And I think when you look at a trade like this, as Steve mentioned, with just how much the Nets should be in trouble based on what they're doing right now. They're in a tax situation in which Prokhorov is paying as much as what the U.S. debt seems to be like right now. It's crazy. He's paying, I think, as much for tax as he is for his his roster. And I think when you look at that, you're looking at a situation in which there almost is no way out. But this guy is unprecedented as far as an NBA GM or NBA president has been before. I think Cuban might be the closest one to him, but at least we've seen pre, uh, recently when Cuban has cut costs. Tyson Chandler is the biggest mention right there. And I think when you look at Prokhorov, we have no idea what he could do with this team. And if he doesn't, if he can't pull a, a rabbit out of a hat here, Celtics could have some unbelievable picks within the next few years. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, he's going to have to really have, as Steve put put it, somebody be stupid and really take some of these you know large contracts off his hands. You know, if he's going to be able to improve this team, you know, certainly they'll have Lopez coming back next mm-hmm. year, and you know, there's no reason to think that um, you know he can't come back at full strength. But at the same time, you know, the, the odometer is still 
clicking on on Kevin Garnett, and you know it would not surprise me to see Garnett walk away at the end of this year, particularly if you know either way if the if the Nets turn it around and 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 win a championship, or if they fall short. You know he's just you know it's it's got to be difficult for him as you know a, a player of his stature to be you know dealing with his kind of diminished physical skills and. Heck, Pierce's contract is up at the end of the season, and, you know, who knows? He could, you know, it's been clear he's been at least unhappy at times in Brooklyn, and he could be, you know, look to move on to another contender or, heck, even look to come back to Boston. Oh, absolutely. And when you look at, yeah, and I remember even Pierce mentioning this past summer the idea that he wanted to open up a restaurant in Boston. And you know what? Who knows if he wants to come back as well? And, you know, of course these guys are going to get their, their number in the rafters, so... What's the difference for another year coming back? Uh, I think that Celtics fans wouldn't mind seeing another veteran face around to bring, as, as we mentioned, the idea that having the older veterans is helpful for a younger team, especially one that's rebuilding. And I'm sure we'll see if Part- Pierce and Garnett are, are tired of it after a, a long and grueling season this year. But it's, it'll be interesting to track, especially when you look at the Nets team and just seeing what all the injuries they've entailed. Garnett and Pierce are definitely part of that that group, and and it seems like when you're resting them almost every other week, it, it's gonna it's gonna hurt you in the regular season, and we'll see if it turns into postseason success for that team. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're gonna be you know a dangerous team in the in in the playoffs, um, with or without um, uh, Brook Lopez, particularly in the first and second round. You know, I expect them to make the playoffs this season, but yeah, going forward, the Celtics could be in a good position with some of those draft picks that they'll be receiving uh, from Brooklyn in the deal. And of course, you know, Steve also touched on you know the fact that Celtics have amassed all these draft picks and it's not just about um you know it's not just about you know drafting players with those picks you know in fact the Celtics have so many picks hmm. coming up over the next five or ten years it's hard to see them using all or, or even a half of them so as Steve pointed out you know the other value those picks have are as part of packages to bring in that impact player who becomes available you know you know depending on the direction of some of the other teams but, and if you look at just how to pick guys it's it's amazing how you know, it seems like people are talking about the Celtics being underrated when with Ainge and his picks. Bradley was a few years ago. Soinger this past off season. You know, it's interesting when it comes to the draft. There aren't that many steals anymore. It doesn't seem like, unless you're like the Spurs and you can just develop almost anybody that's international. It's tough. Um, so it's it's really interesting though when it comes to the draft and just how they're how he's going to use these picks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well it's time to take a break. When we come back, we will have Coach Tim Capstar with us, uh, joining us from the the Brooklyn Nets uh, media team. And until then, stay tuned on Celtics Beat for CLNS Radio. Stay 
All right, Celtics fans, welcome back to CLNS Radio Celtics Speed. I'm your host, Rich Conti, along with my co-host, Adam Lowenstein. And uh, we just finished up a great first segment talking with the Boston Herald's Steve Bullpett about the events that uh, brought Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen to Boston to join uh, Paul Pierce, uh, the, those first couple of that first championship year and some of the, the years following. Uh, now we're going to kind of look at the other end. We're going to talk to Nets radio analyst Tim Capstraw about the trade that sent KG and Pierce down Route 95 to Brooklyn this summer, the events leading up to that, and kind of the direction that the Nets are heading now and kind of how he sees things unfolding. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Tim to the show. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Great. Um, yeah, as we mentioned, you know, Celtic fans were obviously uh, sad to see KG and Pierce go. We had a great six years of, well, six years of KG and uh, much longer for Pierce here in Boston and, you know, big part of the fabric of the, the fan- franchise. But at the end of the day, uh, the Nets and Billy King and Mikhail Prokhorov made a godfather offer that, uh, of course, Danny Ainge couldn't refuse. And, and now KG and Pierce are in Brooklyn. Uh, can you kind of talk about your uh, perspective on the, the the events leading up to that trade? this summer well during uh, draft night we had heard some rumors but oftentimes you hear rumors about things and they never really materialized I, I was shocked by the end of the draft that deal was completed and I was uh, I was everybody associated with the Nets was ecstatic because we felt that the Nets had a decent core of players but really could really use the leadership the talent and really the leadership that a Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce could provide uh, the organization, and uh, everybody was thrilled. Now, obviously, it didn't turn out that way the first couple months of the year, but things are starting to turn that way. Things are really kind of shaping up right now, and uh, those guys are making major, major contributions. And on the other side, the flip side of it, I thought it was in Danny Ainge and the Celtics organization view, a smart, smart move to do. I mean, they've really set themselves up very well for the future. Yeah, the trade did seem to come together really fast. Uh, my my recollection is actually being out to dinner with my wife that night and uh, furiously following things on my phone, uh, kind of much to her dismay as it was happening. Um, you know, I think some of the early impressions were that you know the Nets were uh, attempting to kind of go the, the the super team route and and you know create kind of an all star cast there. And I for one felt you know similar to in in Boston that the pieces sort of fit. You had the you know the really solid lead guard in Deron Williams. You know, Joe Johnson, a prolific scorer off the bench. Pierce, a great scorer, but also kind of one of those glue guys. Uh, Garnett, you know, the ultimate um, veteran leader, glue guy, and, and still a fantastic, you know, communicator on the defensive side. And, of course, the, the really solid low pros presence in, in Brooklyn. Was that, was that the general feeling kind of a, across the league that the pieces kind of fit, or, or was there some, some, some healthy skepticism uh, after the deal was made? Well, I mean, from I've got to tell you, I was as optimistic as you could be. I just thought there was no way people could guard this many top people that could score, score so easily or create mismatch issues. And you know, it was funny that lineup right there. There, there, the people that were skeptics, I, I think, were right because it's it, that lineup in of itself was not a healthy lineup. And, and the biggest reason for the Nets' turnaround right now in this season is that with the departure of Brooke Lopez, they've been able to – they've adjusted their lineup and created almost uh, – uh, they've put a player named Sean Livingston in the starting lineup who understands his role as a point guard. And now they've moved everybody down a position. The Nets were kind mm-hmm. of big and slow and sluggish, especially defensively, couldn't guard people. 
They put Sean Livingston in the guard point guards. Darren Williams moves to two. Uh, Joe Johnson to three. Paul Pierce becomes the forward now, like a stretch four or whatever you want to call him, forward, guy that can do a lot. And then Kevin Garnett goes from four to five. And that happened uh, prior to the Oklahoma City game on January 2nd, and that's where the season turned. So the people that were skeptics about that lineup and how that would work, uh, it turns out they were kind of right. There were there are some holes there. That's not to say Jason Kidd may, may, may have adjusted as time went on and things would have gotten better. But, but that lineup, that super lineup, uh, did not work. The lineup of having chemistry on the floor and also right now even putting Darren Williams as a reserve having Alan Anderson out there and really playing 10 players. They're really going to go 10 deep to the Nets now and have talent off the bench as much as they had talent uh, in their starting five. That has been the effective effective uh, lineup for the Nets. And it just goes to show you, you can't have all you know lead actors out there. You need some role players. You need some dirt workers out there. And now the Nets have that, and I think that's the biggest reason for their turnaround. Hey, Tim, it's Adam here, and what's really interesting is that Kevin Garnett played center for the bulk of last season with the Celtics, so when you look at this year, as Celtics fans, we look at the Nets and we're saying, oh, well, they're going to actually look at him and play him similar to what he did last year in the, when, when the Celtics were forced into playing him at center since they haven't really had a center in a while. When Brooke Lopez goes down, the, the Nets are forced into doing that. Has Garnett been a huge presence for this team, especially since Brooke Lopez has gone down on and off the court? Exactly. He really has. And, and he has been a, a presence throughout the entire season. But unfortunately for him, he wasn't playing well. He'll be the first to tell you. He couldn't make a shot. And you've seen for years <laughs> how well he can shoot. You know, he's a very good 15-, 17-foot shooter. He was breaking everything for, for like two months. He always had the defensive presence. He was an unbelievable communicator. He's got everybody fired up out there playing defense, but he couldn't make a shot, and it really was frustrating to him. But that has turned around dramatically. Again, this is another reason for this resurgence, is that uh, he, he, he can, he's making shots. He's making plays. He doesn't have to play much more than 20, 25 minutes because you want to get players like Andre Gladys on the floor. So he has a very good role. The other thing that it really did for this lineup, and we probably didn't talk enough about this, is that, the lineup became terrific defensively with Garnett going to five and Sean Livingston coming and everybody shifting out of position because basically you can almost switch every position. In fact, you can. You can switch the point guard to the two to the three. Everybody's about the same height. Livingston's six foot seven. Mm-hmm. Alan Anderson, six five. Pierce, six seven, six eight. Joe Johnson, almost six eight. Kevin Garnett has great feet. He could guard when you need him. To, it, it really. And the Nets have been able to improve their defense immensely, especially with Kevin Garnett on the floor. His leadership has been tremendous throughout the year, but I really think that Paul Pierce, maybe for a period of time in, you know, with the Nets, maybe was wondering what his role was, where should he fit, what am I doing, you know, what's going on here. This is not Boston, I miss home, that kind of stuff. And I think it, after a San Antonio game in, in late December, he, that he was – I never saw some – Strong quotes from a veteran player like, man, I am upset right now, and we are going to change things. And when Paul Pierce spoke up, he hadn't necessarily been that guy all year. Garnett always is the guy. Paul Pierce gets angry and starts telling the teammates, this is how we're going to play. I'm sick of losing. I want to play this way. He moves to the power forward. And, boy, I think those words that he expressed 
combined with Garnett and other leaders on the team, but especially those two guys, helped turn this team around. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear kind of the impact of Kevin Garnett sliding over to the five had on the Nets turnaround because, as Adam alluded to, Celtics fans very familiar with that. That was kind of what happened in 2012 when they made that kind of relatively improbable, you know, uh, playoff run Run, conference finals there was the same thing so it's it doesn't surprise me that that it had the same impact in Brooklyn and you know I, I think when the trade was made I think you know in, in general um, you know the detractors some of those skeptics were talking about well you know the fly in the ointment might be Garnett and Pierce's age you know when, when I heard it I actually you know beyond health is always going to be an issue for every team that has championship aspirations. But, you know, I thought it was really going to be a case of how well the, the net veterans really took to the, the, the type of leadership that, that Garnett and Pierce can provide. And so who do you think on the net, you know, has anybody in particular really kind of benefited from their, their presence and their kind of willingness to kind of step up and be those vocal leaders? Well, well you know, it was really funny. Ironically, uh, probably Brooke Lopez did, but he's out for the season. Kevin Garnett yeah. got him playing deep defense like he had never played he was in, <laughs> in route to heaven an all-star season uh you, you know I, you know it's an interesting point when guys get older and you'll see this around the nba if they can older like older small forwards that got good size and can rebound are probably better off as they get older 34 35 years old moving to the four moving to the power forward or the four position just call it the four you don't have to chase guys as much Pierce has always been a good rebounder, and now he gets slower people guarding him, and he can be make the Paul Pierce moves he always made really effectively. And uh, it, it, it's it's strange when guys get older; it's a great move to move them down a position. Again, the Nets were really big and slow when uh, Joe Johnson was at the two and Pierce was at the three, and and everybody moving down has has, has speeded them up. And uh, again, Sean Livingston though should get a lot of credit. He is defense. His, when you see him, you'll be impressed at how long he is. He's six foot seven, and he's one of the good stories in the NBA. But he has helped. And again, the depth. The other thing that came out with this team, and you'll see it on Sunday night. Carol Ankle played his first game against Oklahoma City. He's a really huge help for the Nets. He can guard in multiple positions. He can play. Andre Blatch has got himself in shape. Darren Williams is off the bench now. So uh, there's there's some decent things. This is one of the wild transformations I've ever seen of a team. This team was awful two months ago or a month ago, and now it's really good and really fun to watch. They're averaging last three games more than 30 assists a game. Like Kid is out there playing. It's it's amazing that Sean Livingston is is running a unit like this since he hasn't really played consecutive years with a team since before the Celtics even had Garnett or Pierce. It's amazing what he's well, doing with with just you know coming back. Well, they come back. Remember that gruesome injury he had. I mean, I can't even tell you how many. It was ACLs, MCL, every CL you have in your body was better. <laughs> and he, 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 you know, every, his career is over. He's done. And not only is he good, he'll shock you with his athleticism. He'll, he'll, uh, you won't, you'll relax. But, again, the beauty of him and Anderson, that when they start these guys, is that they don't need to score. And now Joe Johnson knows he's the guy. And if Joe Johnson knows he's the guy to start games, that's really healthy for the Nets. Nobody knew who should be the main guy when every, all the stars were out there. Now everybody, because Pearson Garnett want Joe. The beauty of Pearson Garnett is they want the other guys to be the stars. They didn't come in here to run the show. They're like encouraging guys. Joe, you got to take it. You be strong. 
I don't think Joe Johnson has had this much positive um, <laughs> information sent to him in his career from teammates <laughs> and from coaches because he ha- he's always had a world of talent, but he's I don't know that he's taken it or he's, he's got a personality that might not lead, him to, lead himself to just dominating. Well, he has been a dominant player because these guys keep encouraging him. Yeah, well, I'm not sure Josh Smith was the best guy to have as far as a running mate out in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, um, it was interesting. Yeah, I, don't <laughs> I don't need to go there. <laughs> it is. It's really interesting just looking at this net season. Yeah, the best team thus far in 2014, and if they're all healthy for the playoffs, they could make a run at the finals. What are you thinking for this season? And is this 2013-14 season the best chance the Nets have at a title? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. There's this Jekyll and Hyde thing that's going on yeah. right now. I, I I think it's so strange that I I don't. I don't think it's fluky because I I can't believe how well uh, how unselfish everybody's. You should see the ball move. You're gonna and they play a great <laughs> style of basketball. You know, I mean the way they move the ball is is beautiful right now. So they I don't think it's a fluke that they're playing well. I think Indiana and Miami have separated themselves significantly from the rest of the pack, and I think really the challenge is for everybody else not to be a seven or eight seed. You know what I mean? You don't want. I think the yeah. playoffs. The playoffs start at number six. I mean, you're not in the playoffs unless you're getting a six, in my opinion, because then you can compete. Maybe you can gain some momentum. And interesting enough, the Nets have beaten Miami twice this year. But you know what that? that I think they're just kind of coasting. And so I, I don't, I don't know that this is that they have a chance for a title. I do. That would be really a, uh, an incredible, and that would be one of the great comebacks of all time. This team was 11 games under 500, so I don't know about that. But I do think the way they're playing now, if it continues, they could be a team that makes noise in the playoffs and, and, and could be really interesting uh, to watch play. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And, um, you know, what's the sense down there in Brooklyn about the trade and, and kind of what it means for the future? I mean, are folks kind of just focusing on the here and now and, and enjoying, um, you know, this turnaround and that, that, that great basketball that, that you talked about, um, yeah. you know, or are they kind of, you know, got in the back of the head that at some point it's going to be pay the piper time? Well, I think when you're losing, that's exactly what you think. You think, Oh, wow. Wow. And this can't, I don't know how much better this can get because of, uh, look at these draft picks that are going the way of Boston or other places, and uh, that was frustrating. I think now that you see the team winning, boy, you forget quick. Hey, this is great. <laughs> you know? This is great. Let's keep winning. And we got an owner that's willing to get free agents. We can survive this, you know. And, you know, the frustrating thing was not only were you um, giving up draft picks, but you were playing so poorly that it was going to be a lottery pick. When you were thinking that, Okay, we give Boston our number one, or you give them, the, you give them, you give them your first, you, you, you give them your pick, your first round pick. You're saying, well, you know, so we're going to have a heck of a year, so you're giving them a 23rd pick in the first round. What's the big deal? You know, that's not such a big deal. But then when you're playing poorly, you're saying, what if this ended up being in the lottery, and Boston or Atlanta, whoever gets it, gets the third pick in the draft? You, you, you're going to be, you're gonna, you don't know, you're going to jump off these bridges over here, you know, and. <laughs> It, it, it is that that was kind of in the mind. Now the mindset of hey, this is great. These guys are really playing. Uh, Brooklyn is a great place for free agents. It really is. I mean, it's a beautiful place, to, and it's a good spot. And you know, they can do it differently here by by making sure they you know they're not afraid to go over the luxury tax here at all. And uh, 
I have a chance to, to, to do something right now. And the other thing is, in New York, you kind of compete with the Knicks. So you want to make sure you're making a splash when you move to a new building. That has a lot to do with it. had something to do with it also. So they have to be aggressive and try not to necessarily build slow. Boston fans will support that team, and they do an unbelievable job of supporting the team and understanding they're kind of in a little bit of a rebuild. Brad Stevens is a good, great young coach. We're still going to come out and support this team. But uh, I think in, when you're move, making a move to another destination like the Nets where you want to make a splash, and Garnett and Pierce have helped make that splash. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Celtics fans are kind of putting in an interesting spot, wanting, of course, to root for KG and Pierce to do well down in Brooklyn. I, you know, I, I think I speak for most Celtics fans when I say that it, it would be an enjoyable thing to see the, the Nets uh, unseat the uh, Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals this year. At the same time, uh, the Nets losing kind of uh, directly benefits the Celtics. Uh, you know, they've got the situation where Atlanta has, you know, the rights to, to swap picks, but now with Al Har- Horford out, they're, they're no guarantee yeah. or lock to make the playoffs. So Celtics fans kind of caught between a, a, a rock and a hard place there. But, you know, um, you know, what do you see happening down the road with, uh, with, with KG and Pierce? Um, you know, KG has flirted with retirements for, for several year running and, and Pierce's contract runs out at the end of the year. Do you see them back in Brooklyn next year? Yeah, it's hard call. I don't know. I don't know. I, again, you know, now it seems like everybody's having fun and enjoying it. So you you, you don't know. It's, it's, I think you got to let that play out. I, I would have no feel for that. Um, it, it, you know what they what they want to do. It's just really nice to see them enjoying. Uh, they deserve it. You know, they enjoy. Uh, they deserve to feel good about playing good quality basketball. Uh, and they are the last three four weeks. It's it's been a real pleasure. I, I really hard for me to uh, to, to have a, a good pulse on on what that what that will bring uh, the future with those two guys. Have no idea. Well, what's interesting about the you know those two guys? Obviously, they're they're trying to play on the here and now because of how well they've played in 2014 and trying to do as well as they can for this postseason. And then you know they'll see what they want to do afterwards. Um, as far as Sunday goes, when they're heading into Boston and going to play Rondo and the Celtics for the first time at the Garden, the, the TD Garden, not the Madison Square Garden, uh, but what do you think is going to happen Sunday? Just on the floor, off the floor, Steve Bopet said that there's going to be a lot of tears being shed, at least by Pierce. Uh, we don't know about Garnett, but you know, what do you think is going to happen on Sunday? No, I think it's going to be really emotional for everyone, right? for those guys. And I think because everybody likes those guys so much, even with the Nets, it's going to be an emotional. And then when the game starts, I think the game will be fine. But certainly prior to the game, uh, I, I felt like, you know, Paul Pierce came here, but it wasn't easy for him to come here. You know what I mean? It was, he would have he liked to just retire a, a Celtic. He understands the business of it. He, he know, I don't think he complained or anything like that, but I think it's taken him a while to become adjusted. And now he's okay. And I think he'll play really good basketball and want to show how good they can play. But prior to that game, prior to they tip it up and they're playing, it's going to be uh, a very emotional, only because of the good feelings and, and the appreciation that um, if Pierce has, Garnett will feel the same way, and uh, even Jason Terry, Terry to you know maybe not the same extent, but certainly important to him too. I, I think anybody that's been associated with Boston Celtics uh, feels that way, and Paul Pierce is one of those one of those names. It's going to be one of those legendary names when you refer to Celtics. So um, it's going to be it's going to be special, and I'm sure the fans will make them feel appreciated. 
Yeah, you know, I definitely, you know, it's clear the Celtics are going to, you know, make it a special occasion. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, those two players are so, you know, enmeshed in the the, the fabric of the franchise. You know, uh, even Garnett, you know, only being there for six years, uh, you know, it it, it kind of seemed like he was there for twenty years. He just became right. such a part of the, the 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 franchise's history. And I know they they both hold it near and dear to their hearts. And I think the the franchise is going to, you know, the franchise and the fans are obviously going to recognize that on on Sunday. So I'm really looking forward uh, to it. You know, earlier you talked about the kind of Jekyll and Hyde nature of of the Nets. Kind of, you know, what are the things that you're hoping to see as as the rest of the season unfolds that will give you some some confidence heading into the playoffs? I play like they have played the last three weeks. It has been unbelievably enjoyable. It's like who can make the best pass, who can make the next pass. Then you bring it down to the other end of the floor, and you're playing, you're helping each other, trusting each other on offense, trusting each other on defense. I, I tell you, talk about the, Jason Kidd has put his stamp on this. It took a while. It took a while. Everybody going to a new job understands that. But it's taken a while. But it's like I had the pleasure of broadcasting when Jason Kidd was out there. It's like he's on the floor now. Everybody's passing like he did up and down the lineup and it's converting to the defensive side of the floor. They play like they are right now. That unselfishness, they're a dangerous team. Are they a great team? That's a stretch. As far as Jason Kidd going forward with this team, is he the entrenched coach going forward for years to come, or is it going to be a touch-and-go moment every every few months here? No, nah, no. Nah, I, I think that's uh, – I thought maybe that was some growing pain stuff. I don't know that uh, – whatever. Uh, he seems like he has really put his stamp on this team the last few weeks. Now, if you had asked me – uh, last month, I'd say, well, you know, it's tough to coach in the NBA. I don't know how it's all going to work. But, boy, for the, you know, a very unique reason. And I don't know, again, this transformation of a team and maybe the coach, maybe a little bit of everything, the perfect storm of, of good things happening for a team. Uh, I think he's he, he he's in pretty good shape. And, and honestly, I think the, our Russian owner, Mikhail Prokhorov, loves him. Loves the idea that he's the coach, wants, to, wants him to grow into the position and get comfortable. And uh, he just had to do it with with an interesting lineup. Unlike Brad Stevens, who's looking to get comfortable and learn how to be an NBA coach, there were not that much ex- expectations. And then you can kind of grow into it. With Jason Kidd, they threw this whole group, this lump of players together that for some reason really wasn't the right recipe. But he's figured out the recipe as the season's gone on and um, adjusted a few things and, uh, you know, and just taken control over the – over the team, and it's really benefited him and the organization. Well, great. I want to let you go, uh, Tim. Folks, you can follow uh, Coach Capshaw on Net Broadcast on WFAN in New York, as well as Select Broadcast on NBA TV. You can also follow him on Twitter at Tim Capstraw. And thanks again, Tim, for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to Sunday night. All right, guys. Nice talking to you. Thanks well, so thank much. Thank you very much, Tim. Bye-bye. Well, Adam, that was great hearing the uh, the Nets' perspective on the trade and on uh, how things are going down there. It's amazing just to see all the different dimensions to everything that we have here. Not only are the Celtics and Nets so intermingled with all these picks, but you include the Hawks in there with that pick. You include this whole saga that the Nets went through with Jason Kidd at the beginning of the season. It's hilarious that everything just seems to be coming together or at least you know the Nets are playing so much better now recently that of course it feels weird that the Celtics are like oh well we want that pick we don't want that pick but of course if they could defeat Miami and even if they could defeat Indiana 
I'll tell you, after Lance Stevenson put on his little happy show with that triple-double in the second time that they faced each other, you know, I'm sure Celtics fans wouldn't mind seeing Indiana go down, even though Larry Bird is at the helm there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, music for Celtics beat was provided by Carlos Andres Mesa, Astra Vex, and Steph Panico. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. For our executive producer, Larry H. Russell, my co-host Adam Lowenstein, I'm Rich Conti. See you next Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. 11 Pacific for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.